0: Hello, and welcome to East dropping at the Movies.
1: I'm Mike. And
0: And we're talking about a new David Fincher, released on Netflix, Mank, mm. which is a biopic about the making, or the writing of the script, of uh, Citizen Kane by Herman Mankiewicz. Or, well, Herman Mankiewicz, as the Americans say it, and I was just saying to you, oh, I great, because I think it's Herman Mankiewicz. But in the film, he's Mank to everybody.
1: Yeah. He might be. I mean, um,
0: everyone gets to choose how to pronounce their own surname, don't they? And that's the. And there are
1: variations, right? Because there's a famous uh, Quebecois filmmaker, and he would pronounce his name as Mankiewicz. So, you know, kind of maybe I am just using the same pronunciation for both. They were of German origin, so however the German pronunciation is, I suppose that would be the correct one yeah well that would be the correct one in Germany wouldn't it it yeah, might yeah. be the correct exactly. one in New York so you know so because um, he, he's American yeah. so you know
0: but anyway um, Mang Yeah, that's his name and um, I mean I was quite looking forward to this I suppose I had a certain amount of trepidation about it and I'm not really sure why I mean I like David Fincher um,
1: I love David Fincher yeah and
0: I, and I trust his work and I've just been watching you know bits of um, uh, Mindhunter again and I watched the social network recently by chance and you know so I've, I've been watching stuff recently and it's all very good, really
1: It's one I mean I think the, I think he's a great filmmaker it's he's always so imaginative and he's so kind of conscious and punctilious about you know the use of image and color and mise en scène I mean you know mm. when the camera moves it's always for a reason uh this is why I find this film so disappointing
0: yeah, so you, well, can we read out what you wrote on Facebook? sure would, would you mind
1: no go ahead i'll
0: I'll read it I'll, I won't do it
1: I stand by it so
0: yeah yeah no. so um, um because we watched it separately. Part of the reason that we watched it separately, um, I, I didn't tell you, but basically it was so that I could um, watch it on my flash new telly. <laughs> <laughs> Don't think I didn't
1: suspect that. <laughs> <laughs> I really wanted, to, you know,
0: because cause the new TV I just bought is um it's got HDR oh. as well, high dynamic range, which gives you this kind of greater range of brightnesses, of, so you can see details. In oh, that would be
1: good because I'll ask you to comment on that.
0: So you can see all these details in the in the brights and darks. Um, which I think the film uses very well, and it looked wonderful, so I was, I was I was glad of the opportunity to sit at home and kind of bask in that. Okay. So you are watching it on your own as well. And, um, and then you wrote yesterday, quote, Jose Arroyo, Maybe I'm in a bad mood, so we'll give Mank another go tomorrow, but I found the first 30 or 40 minutes today almost unwatchable, bloated and self-important, like a bad literary adaptation, with too much exposition, people in situations over-explained, old men too old, and speaking in that awful sing-songy voice actors often use in period pieces, and rather smug, the introduction of Charles Lederer to the Algonquin group in Hollywood was unbearable. Yes. And then a conversation ensued in which a lot of people basically agreed with you. Yes. And I was reading that, I'd watched the film by this point, and I was, watched, I was reading that going, God, you're all sticks in the mud. I had a lot of fun with this film.
1: Okay, well, that's interesting because my friend has me said she also enjoyed it, and I was going to ask her why, because actually I think it's dreadful. You know, it's now not, you have seen the whole thing. I have now seen the whole thing. I stand by it. I think you know th- what I wrote on Facebook well describes what I think of the first thirty or forty minutes, mm-hmm. um, and I it made me believe again, you know, and kill the father because you know I've never seen anything so bad from Fincher, mm-hmm. right? Uh, to me, it's a little bit like Almodovar's. I'm so excited that. You know, you can't believe that this filmmaker, whom you love almost everything, did a film so crappy. And you think, is he losing touch? What's the reason that this film stands out like a sore thrum, mm. you know, from the rest of his filmography by its crappiness? And actually, I think the screenplay is the reason for it. Though it's not the only reason for it. I think it's a horrible screenplay. So the screenplay hear- was
0: written by his dad. Exactly. Um, some years ago, and his dad died in 2003, I think. And I'm sure there have been changes and rewrites and all that kind of thing, but the... the,
1: He gets all credit. Yes,
0: because he's credited to him.
1: So, uh, I think it's a horrible screenplay, and actually, uh, I was watching Yuzo Kawashima's The Handsome Brute yesterday, uh, and it's an example of the difference, you know, of the differences between them. Mm -hmm. So, Yuzo Kawashima's film begins with... A mother and a father in a little apartment, saying, "Oh, Mr. So and So is coming. Hide the good ashtray. <laughs> yeah, kind of make sure you know that uh, that nothing expensive is. Uh, yeah, hide everything expensive in the flat. Yeah, and already you're beginning to think, Yeah, why? What's happening? Who is this person? Why do they have to hide their riches? Right? Yeah, kind of. And that's how it begins." Yeah. right so you're already in the midst of something exciting and something unfolding and yeah there, you begin with drama right mm-hmm. whereas actually with Mank, you begin with all this horrible exposition yeah, you know, kind of oh here's so and so you know ha 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 right and you're you're either meant to recognize the names or in case you don't recognize the names they give you a line to describe who the person is when he's
0: being introduced to the algonquin group
1: yeah mm-hmm. you know um i think it's just awful well this kind of goes to a slightly different thing I had, which is not necessarily a problem
0: I felt with the film, but just a kind of limitation, which is how wide do you think its reach will be? I mean, we, I, we spoke recently about the small acts film, Lovers Rock.
1: Yes, which I uh, love. Where I, I
0: was suggesting, you know, as good as it is, the reach of it might be quite small, and actually that was the reason that it mostly impressed me, because, because it, this thing which I felt had a kind of limited reach made it onto the mm. BBC, onto telly, you know? Do you think there's something similar here where... Uh, Although it didn't play to you in the way you know you would have liked, you recognise the people and all that kind of thing. You know the stories, but beyond that, if if you're not someone who comes to it with any particular knowledge about Kane, about the history, anything like that, or or any particular interest in Hollywood, would it get you interested? Would well, it teach you anything?
1: I mean, we don't know that, right? I mean, my friend Hasmik liking it would suggest, you know, that it might reach people. So so I think there's this assumption amongst film people like myself. You know, that you need to know all this stuff for it to be entertaining. But, Mm. you know, then my friend has me who doesn't have a back. I mean, she's a cinephile, but she doesn't have a background in film. You know, she liked it. So maybe actually the more you know, the worse it is, because you keep finding faults, (laughs) (laughs) you know. So, I mean, that's an impossible thing to say, right? Uh, I suspect, you know, and then you can convince me otherwise, but I don't see this film really working at all. Right kind of I don't understand even what its focus is, you know, so on the one hand it's about you know writing the screenplay for uh um citizen Kane, citizen Kane. but it's not really about that, is it It's also about upton sinclair's election uh election attempt uh, election attempt mm-hmm. um I don't know what the whole thing with Hearst and Marion Davis is there to evoke you know I mean it's a nice story, everybody you know who knows the story likes it uh you know, kind of it describes it in a way quite well, you know, but that's not the drama of the film either. So there are all these long side things that, (laughs) you know, in some ways don't really matter to the story, right? Mm. You know, because uh, if the story is about the writing and him getting credit, you know, then actually what does it matter, you know, that all these people, you know, try to stop the film. Or indeed, because the film stops where it does, then you actually don't see the drama, which is that, you know, basically he lost his career as a result of getting the credits for this film. Yeah. Right. It was very difficult for him to get a job afterwards. So that could have been the drama of the film. And then the the presence of L.B. Mayer and Irving Thalberg and, mm. you know, Randolph Hearst. That would make sense then. Yeah. If they would be the active blockers or the the... the, the 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 people involved in the destruction of this man. Hmm. Actually that's not the drama of this film. No, I mean I would so, say even coming so to what the what is the drama?
0: <laughs> I would say that coming to the film with the assumption that it's going to be about the um, the fight for credit on Citizen Kane is incorrect. I mean that's that comes in about five minutes from the end. And although the film ends on it, I think that's really shonky that it just it kind of shows up and there's this discussion Mank, although he has previously signed away the credit to the mercury theater now he says no i want the credit for this but i want to be credited as a screenwriter and this fight ensues between he and orson wells but orson wells has hardly been in the film up until that point and in fact when you have seen him you've heard him on the phone you've seen him once or twice they've basically been in cahoots like they've been on the same side on the mm-hmm. same page going we're going to make this film and it's other people who are kind of saying oh no you it's too it's wrong or it's too long or you haven't done it right whatever mm-hmm. they're on the same page so that works very badly, and I don't. And that's not what the film is about. Mm. I, so I think it's a bad way to end it. Mm. I think what the film is about is about the kind of machinations of power. It's essentially so. The structure of the film is in the present day, which is nineteen forty. Um, is it 1939?
1: Uh It would be about nineteen forty,
0: yeah. Yeah. So uh, Mank has had this car accident. He's broken his leg he's in bed and he's got this secretary who he's given dictation to and he's got this 60 days to write the screenplay basically or write the first draft for awesome Wells. and so he's out in the ranch supposedly drying out and what have you he's an alcoholic by this point and he's given this dictation, and she very quickly works out this is about William Randolph Hearst like anyone in the western world will know this is William Randolph Hearst it's so recognizable that this is who Kane's meant to be and then he starts going into these flashbacks and you know it comes up on screen. Int. L.B. Mayer Studios' Flashback 1930-whatever, um, which I, I imagine you probably hated. I thought it was kind of fun. Once it establishes that, it keeps switching between the 1930s, which play out in chronological order, and the present day. Yeah. These two kind of parallel timelines. And what it's ultimately saying is all this stuff that you see in Flashback is why the script is what it is today. And more importantly, why Mank is who he is and why he's the only person who could write this. That's what it's saying, right? This is his experience with William Randolph Hearst. This is his experience in the movie business. This is his experience with the powerful, you know,
1: particularly with um, L.B. Mayer. Well, but you see, that's already all wrong to begin with because actually it erases cinema, right? It erases Orson Welles' contributions, yeah. right? Uh, completely, right? Uh, which has to be wrong, right? There's,
0: there's a great tweet. I think this is the time to bring this up that I saw a few days ago before the film came out from uh, James Urbaniak, who is a critic in America, I think. Um, oh, no, he's a writer. Anyway, and he wrote on Twitter, Is it true that Mac begins with Peter Falk reading Pauline Kale's Raising Cain to his grandson? <laughs> Raising Cain... Well, you you can maybe talk about Raising Cain. Well,
1: I mean, you know, kind of that's the argument, really, and, that, and which has been disproved, you know, and which actually I think maybe two nasty things has been said about Pauline Kael that... She, she plagiarized somebody's thesis and it was all wrong to begin with, you know, and so on, right? Because uh, Pauline Kael's argument basically was that Orson Welles was a credit hog and that in fact, kind of, you know, the responsibility for the greatness of Cain kind of lay in Joseph Mankiewicz's uh, screenplay. Herman. And Herman Mankiewicz's screenplay and that that hadn't been uh, highlighted sufficiently. So that was her project about raising Kane. Yeah. Right. Um, but that has been disproven. Right. Yeah, and that's pretty, been pretty roundly discredited. Exactly.
0: In the last 50 years.
1: But that still seems to be the argument of this film.
0: It yeah. very much seems to be that. And also, the, the question I have is, although it makes a kind of very compelling case for, if you try and detach it from actual reality, just for a moment in your head, and say, okay, well, let's just think it's about characters. So let's assume this character is you know, has all this background and um, was the perfect person to write it for all these reasons. Um, you go, okay, but he is still like half the equation, right? You still need Orson Welles, who's the filmmaker, to actually do it. And the film isn't suggesting that um, Mankovich jumped on Orson Welles with this surprise screenplay about William Randolph Hearst. Because right at the start, I think, right when they're on the phone, and I think it's in the trailer even, Orson Welles says to him, um, are you ready to go uh, harpoon the white whale? And um, Mank says, call me Ahab. So uh, clearly, they, they are both, you know, this is... It's about William Randolph Hearst. He is the white whale they're talking about, and that's what they are, I think. I think that's the... the, the but if that's, of that a,
1: if that's the case, then I actually think the film fails as well. Because actually, William Randolph Hearst is not given that kind of attention in the film. He's not given that kind of power. You don't see mm. you know, the damage that he actually did do to American democracy, right? He supported the fascists. So you know, you could have made all of that more dramatic, more vivid, more urgent, mm-hmm. right? Instead of dissipating, dissipating it all amongst L.B. Mayer and you know Irving Thalberg and you know all the well, stuff. Well, maybe the white so, whale well is then a bigger. Uh,
0: maybe the white whale well is bigger than that. Then maybe the white whale well is the structure that I was talking about the power structure in Hollywood that gets to kind of write these dreams the dream factory that at the same time is going towards workers and saying please please on bend your knee take half your wages for the next eight weeks because we can't possibly
1: function but the thing is those are all different stories so I mean you know those are all kind of in a way I don't know if historical facts but they're historical incidents let's say right Mm. you know I'm not sure how accurate the, the exact depiction in the film was and you know personally I don't care I mean it is a drama you know But dramatically, kind of those things are not kind of brought together into a drama. They're they're incidents that are almost kind of distinct, you know. And I think the whole thing is too dissipated and too disjointed, really. I don't think it's really about the man. Because actually, you don't get to know much about the man either. And there's an interesting story to tell about Mankiewicz, right? Mm. You know, kind of what made him into this alcoholic? What made him into a compulsive uh, galmer? You know, why did poor Sarah continue to love him all the time? You know, this is... He's an interesting man. I don't think all those things are brought forth, you know. And actually, what you see... And this is... You know, we should have another discussion about Gary Oldman. Because, (laughs) you know, to me, I think the film also fails because of him, Right? You know, I think he is a very good actor, but to me, he's not a star. He never brings you in. And actually, you need somebody extremely charismatic to kind of convey a character like this. And he doesn't have it. You know, to me, he's not charismatic. Uh, He's dull, really.
0: I liked him a lot. I did. The thing is, the film is cliche upon cliche.
1: Yes, and thank you. <laughs>
0: oh, no, I, you know, I have my criticisms, <laughs> but the thing is, I went with the clichés, right? I chose to enjoy it, I guess. Well, like, I started enjoying it, and I just didn't stop. So Mankiewicz, in the film, sees the absurdity of the system and sees the unfairnesses of it when he's taking through the new guy, I forget who it is, the guy who
1: he introduced... Charlie Lederer.
0: Lederer. When he's taking him through Hollywood at the start, and particularly they go and see, as I mentioned, um, Louis B. Mayer, asking all his employees to take a pay cut when, you know, it's absolutely obvious that he is unfair, right? He's taking advantage of his position and whatever. And then, you know, after the thing finishes, he says, not even the most disgusting thing I've seen today or something like that. You know, he has this wit around him that about him that keeps him protected from the kind of world that he's in. And then I think that turns into substance abuse. And that is a cliché it's like straight down the line cliche. Someone protecting themselves from the world with substance abuse, and um, falling into it. And especially in a biopic, you see it so much in biopics where it's the person who started off all right and then they became a drug addict.
1: But part of the problem with this film. But
0: I didn't mind it. That's the thing. I well, didn't
1: mind. I you know, well I did. I mean, I suppose I expect better things. To I indulged term. in it, you know. Well, I didn't, and I think the reason why is because you don't know what drives him. And actually, I think what, what drove Mankiewicz yeah, uh, is a kind of a self loathing. Right, like you know, here's this man, so intelligent, you know, so intelligent, so talented, so so many expectations, and you know, what did he become? He became a whore, yeah, so, in his mind, yeah. Mm. He was kind of, you know, he was making the big bucks, kind of producing trash, and he always saw the films as trash, right? Kind mm. of, you know, greatness was in literature for him and for a large part of that generation of people, yeah. Kind of maybe on the stage, certainly not on film, right? You know, so, you, you know, if you would have turned this into a drama about that, about, you know, self-loathing then maybe redemption by attacking all of this and so on. But there's no self-loathing there. You don't even know what makes him an alcoholic. Mm. Yeah. You just see almost the charm of being an alcoholic. that he's, you know, he sneaks in the alcohol and, you know, and he's basically a nice guy who's rescued all these, you know, Jews from Europe and so on. Yeah. But kind of, you know, then why is he this mess? Right. And he's not even an entertaining mess. Right, like he's a charisma-free mess. <laughs> so, uh, um,
0: yeah, but I think it's not just that. It's like it, it, you do when you see him in these flashbacks, especially when he's interacting with with Hearst and the the sort of higher ups. You do sense this um, sort of pushing back when they have that that discussion that, at um, at Hurst's sort of palace, and everyone's sitting around and they're ex- exchanging quips, and then the conversation turns to Upton Sinclair. Who is this? Essentially, he's like a Bernie Sanders of his day. Mm. You know, I mean, they keep throwing out words socialism, communism, and obviously the pirates in this party, Hurst and Mayer, he's persona non grata as far as they're concerned. Disgusting, what you know? And Manx steps up to to defend him and explain the difference between socialism and communism in you know a kind of Bon moy way. He says, in socialism, everyone's everyone shares the wealth. In communism, everyone shares the poverty. And I think the film has a kind of project in talking to. To various things about today, because that is absolutely a conversation people are having today. Socialism is, is like it's been in the news basically since Bernie Sanders kind of brought it back. And you can have your argument about whether Bernie Sanders is, is a communist or a socialist. I think he's capitalist who's just kind of rebranded socialism as capitalism. I but it's in, the, it's in the news now, right? It's in the conversation now. Stuff about people in power, abusing those below, not abusing in the sense of physical or emotional abuse, but I mean in, like, economic abuse, you know, the economic abuse of the powerful over the poor. Yeah, you know, that's a, a conversation that's very active today. The thing about fake news, the, the thing about the... The uh, quote. Yeah, well, the, I was going with the um, the fake interviews that MGM put together to... Um, I'm trying to get my words together.
1: To create propaganda to win the election.
0: Perfect. The propaganda that wins the election for whoever's standing against Upton Sinclair. And it's people lying about, you know, these stage interviews. mm I mean, that's it's impossible to miss that stuff today. In fact, it's interesting that in the social network ten years ago, you know, nobody anticipated David Fincher didn't anticipate it, but nobody else did either. That Facebook was going to be the the place where fake news was kind of born in its new, mm. you know, kind of apocalyptic form.
1: But you know, to me, kind of all the things that you're saying, fine, but these are all interesting areas the, uh, to explore, right? The question is how the film dramatizes them, mm. and, and my view is that it does so very poorly. So. You know, it's kind of, it's taking all of these things, right? And you could say, well, this is the setting, yeah, of uh, the film. Um, but, you know, kind of, these remain tangential to me. Right. You know, kind of, I, it's You don't not, think any of
0: those, any of these things fit together?
1: Well, I mean, I think they fit together to a degree in the sense that they show you uh, um, Mankiewicz being honorable and chivalrous you know, and doing the right thing at great personal cost, you know. But to me, that is kind of sanctimonious shit, really. I mean, you know, the, the, the film would have been more powerful if you'd also kind of seen him be complicit with all of that, yeah? Mm. I mean, he's somebody who wormed himself into this world. He was the highest-paid screenwriter of his day. You know, you don't get to be that if you just continuously insult everybody in power, <laughs> right? So, kind of, things don't make sense. Mm. And actually, they don't make sense emotionally, Right. To have like a declining alcoholic kind of be the voice of reason without seeing him struggling with his own demons, you know, mm. is a major dramatic lack. I mean, you know, the, the source of drama is that conflict, right? And actually, you never examine his own interiority. You know, it's almost mm. like he might be an alcoholic and he might be weak, but he's always doing the right thing at personal cost. I mean, come on.
0: No, I think no, that's actually, true. I, I, the, the film doesn't go to great pains to do that. And I, I think there are places I can read into it, but it's, it doesn't seem like it's as uh, central to the film as it should be. Mm. Um, essential to, or it doesn't feel like the film wants it to be as important as it is. It doesn't matter to the film really very much. Um, I thought it was kind of interesting the scene where he, he's been shown the fake newsreels, the fake interviews, um, and he goes and he, and he immediately realizes this is going to cost up to Sinclair the election, then it's wrong. And he goes to Irving Thalberg to, to, to uh, uh, confront him about them. And they have this discussion. And then um, Irving Thalberg says something like, you might make a difference if you'd ever given it the office. Something uh, like that, yeah. right? Basically saying you, 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 know, you talk the talk, but you don't actually do anything.
1: Well, I think the argument there is that he's so sneery and sarcastic and so on that he's never tested himself as an artist. Yeah? Is that what you think it is? I thought that's what it was about. You know, so so Irving Thalberg was saying, I come here, I go to the mat for things I believe in, I fight for what I believe in, mm. yeah, and so on. Whereas actually, you just keep an ironic distance on everything, you never have to put yourself on the line.
0: Yeah, well, I think we're saying the same thing there, yeah. Um, and because then that that was interesting to me that he then is spoken of by his nurse, who he saved from Germany, as having saved this whole town of 100 people from Germany. I don't know, that doesn't sound like it can be that true. But I know that people were
1: sponsoring... I'm not sure if if that is true or not, but certainly other people were doing that. I I know that Ben Heck did that.
0: No, I read that he was, but this thing about 100 people in this one town, I'm not sure that specifically. That sounds like a bit of a...
1: Mm, Could be, though.
0: Could be. But certainly he was sponsoring people to escape uh, Nazi Germany. Yes. Um, So that then is this link, which the film doesn't point up at all, between he's been told this in in his flashback, you don't do anything,
1: and then later you see, oh, he has done something very recently. Uh, but that's, uh, those are two different things. You, they're not comparable because, for example, you know, if you're a man of conscience, and actually it doesn't cost you much to save hundred people. You know, you could save hundred people without necessarily kind of you know testing yourself or putting anything about yourself on the line, mm. right? Like, I don't know. Let's say if you're a billionaire, you know, and it costs like fifty thousand dollars to save, you know, a, a village in Bangladesh. Well, I know, you know what you mean, but not everyone does that. Billionaires don't tend to do that. No, but also it's a different question if it doesn't cost you much. You know, if you don't have, if you risk your life to save that village, that's one thing. You know, if you give them some, what is to you, pocket chains to save that village, it's a d- different thing altogether. Now, I appreciate that. I mean, you know, I don't want to minimize that. It still saves people's lives. But I think that's not what the film is talking about. And so you can't talk about it in those ways. When mm. Thalberg says you never put yourself on the line, you're always kind of at a one remove. You know yeah I think uh, um, you know those are different things yeah, maybe i thought I felt the connection between those things, um well, you know, um I think it would have the film would have been interesting if it would have explored that connection, sure, you know, so you know saving a hundred people in this village in Europe, you know, and then kind of treating your wife like shit for forty years or <laughs> whatever <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like kind of you know how does the moral you know kind of dimension of all of that or the ethical dimension of that kind of get ironed out or does it but the film never involves itself in any of those difficulties no you know so um, I, I, I mean I didn't like it I didn't like the acting I didn't like the tone the only person in the film that I thought came across very well is Amanda Seyfried I thought yeah, she was great she's great she looks beautiful she's alive at every moment you know she brings the film to life whenever she's there I disagree with you about the black and white I think it was a mistake to film this particular work in black and white. Mm-hmm. Uh you know when you think of Los Angeles in the 1930s you know you think of palm trees and sunlight and the land of milk and honey you know <laughs> and kind of yeah those particular color I mean you 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 know mm. yeah you want to see all of that uh and then kind of you could bring in the corruption and all of that like you know something like Chinatown does or whatever but I think, uh, you know, black and white has particular effects that I think kind of don't do any service to the film. Mm. Um,
0: I rather like the pastiche of it. And, you know, I thought there was a kind of visual wit um, to some of it. I mean, there's the thing about the cigarette burns that actually Fincher did back in Fight Club. Mm. Um, and they pop up here and, and they're used for a specific joke early on that, you know, they, met, they, say, they say cigarette burns and then they show up. Something like that. And the film had an energy that I really liked... Especially early on with... I think I, you're going to disagree with this. I, and I can I already do. I
1: can hear you. <laughs> I, can, I can hear you going... Oh. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um,
0: I, I think some of those early conversations... Had a screwball energy. That I really liked. I think they
1: were attempting it.
0: I thought they achieved it. Uh. I, people always were there with, the, with exactly the right line... And they didn't have... They, they didn't, there were no pauses. It was line, 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 line. And every one of them was
1: funny. They, they were all famous lines you know, from the period that, uh, you know, uh, those people had actually uttered. And, uh, you know, I, I hated their use. I hated the way that they were spoken. You know, it's uh, it's also an appealing, an appeal to people in the know, you know, that you understand where the telegram comes, Ken comes in, you know. They weren't uh, so. all famous lines. What, this, I'm talking also about the scene
0: where they pitch the kind of stupid horror movie to... Um, uh,
1: Forget the and letter takes over and is giving was it. it Yeah, the pictures of Selznick. Yeah,
0: so those aren't famous lines, like they're, they're that's no, the those, thing that, they're all that, that isn't. Um, the, I'm also talking about the scene that I mentioned at Hurst's Manor where they're all talking about politics and so on. And again, like lines just buzz around the room, they jump and, dun, 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 a, and a lot,
1: a lot of them are. I mean, i you know, my memory's very bad, but a lot of them are famous lines. Yeah. Yeah, the lines that you've read, yeah, kind of in histories about these people right. uh, and that they're redeployed kind of very selectively and they are spoken like they are yeah, <laughs> like, you know, um, so uh, I really disagree with you about the energy. I think this film is leaden. It's completely leaden. Actually, it has a particular kind of smugness, you know, that I don't associate with Finch. Actually, um you know everything is too neat everything is too bad and there's a superior attitude yeah to the material really um you know kind of mank always knows yeah he's always kind of perfect he always does the right thing um so
0: i know what you mean about that i said i pretty much agree with that um although he doesn't do the right thing when he takes the bullets off um What's his name?
1: That's because he didn't know better. He tried to do the right thing. He yeah, thought know, he'd done the right the thing. But the
0: second he did that, I thought you'd need to insist on getting the gun.
1: Well, I thought I thought the same, you know. Um, but again, and, and
0: he's a screenwriter. He should know that there's going to be a twist.
1: Yeah, And Fincher's a filmmaker. He should know that an audience is going to ask those quest- questions of something so stupid. Yeah. Right? So, um, you know, I, I thought it was, like, uh, very unsatisfying. And what I find very interesting is... Well, two things I find interesting, which we disagree with. But, you know, I think Gary Oldman's performance is interesting because he's very good at conveying emotion. Yeah, he's a very good actor. Mm. Yeah, but I think he makes very bad choices. I think he makes very bad choices about, you know, his voice, his speaking, uh, the way that he reads those lines. He is very sing-songy in the beginning. Um, And it made me understand why somebody who has been... Almost a star for 40 years. I mean, I remember seeing him in Sid and Nancy. Yeah, how he never really became one Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think actually, you know This is the role that really makes me understand why you know, he lacks the charisma and also He lacks the gift of bringing the audiences into his feelings. Yeah Mm -hmm. of of Making you know an audience side with him. Yeah, he's he he doesn't uh, induce empathy really so you know kind of I thought that was interesting this is why someone who's been almost a star he's named but he's not quite a star and he's never really quite been one Mm. this is why (laughs) you can see it in this film (laughs) and
0: on the question of him being too old I raised this with you before you'd actually started watching it I kind of said out of the blue do you think he's too old to play Mankovic because he's some 15 years older than the real Mankovic was and then you go to 10 years before that in the 1930s and he's really too old then yeah i kind of i I didn't mind it when he was lying in bed doing the screenplay. I kind of thought he does look broken and old, and i didn't yeah. I thought he looked all right. they kind of fit as a younger man it really really does not absolutely work. not um, um I mean I felt the thing that we felt in the Irishman where you know you've, you've got these men who are playing people in their early thirties maybe and they're trying to kick people in the streets and you're going, but you're seventy and I can see it in how you're moving yeah. felt it
1: here and also you know one of the things that I really um I disliked it, and it's just a mistake, is this misunderstanding of the role of the screenwriter in Hollywood. So, at the very beginning, when he's introduced to Albie Mayer, yeah, when Marion Davis is being burned at the stake or something, it's basically signaled that screenwriters aren't very important, right? Like, Mm. Albie Mayer doesn't remember who he is. But in the film, then treats him as he is this major figure in the Hollywood firmament. Mm. And even though he might have been one of the highest paid screenwriters of his time, yeah, screenwriters never held that position. Yeah. You know.
0: Well actually that's what that's what um, uh, Pauline Kerr was kind of trying to address in Raising Cain, wasn't it really? Well but, like yeah screenwriters had never been in this class of person that had the you know they they weren't part of the auteur theory. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, and for good reasons, you know, so, um, you you know, she always had a thing where you could detect a Jules Furtham film and so on, which you can, right, you know, but it's one thing to see how, as an art form, film is a collaborative medium, there's no question about that, right, Um, but also in terms of a power structure and who has the power to get things made and get things done. Yeah, kind of, you know, the writer in Hollywood has never had a very high position. So, you know, for someone who's relatively insignificant to be addressing William Randolph Hearst, I mean, one thing to address Irving Thalberg or Albie Mayer in that way, which I also think he wouldn't have, you know, but then to address William Randolph Hearst, who... Albi Mayer was licking his ass because he was so powerful, mm. right? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense at all, you know, mm. so
0: uh it's quite a fantasy, really
1: Well, it's a fantasy, but also i I think I hate it because it somehow um wants us to buy into the idea that resistance or rebellion has no cost attached to it, mm. yeah. You know? He does these things, he talks back, and that's good, right? Whereas actually, it would have been better had he talked back, and then you would see the consequences of the talking back, and then him continuing to do it nonetheless. That's true. The most
0: it's perceived with is a kind of, oh, that's Mank. Yeah. You know, that's who he is, that's what he's like. He still gets a seat at the table.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know... uh, uh, Actually,
0: I kind of felt Hearst came across as quite humane in the film. And maybe that's part of it that, like, he doesn't really... He, you know, he he has the ability to mete out punishment if he wants, and he doesn't. He also really appears to love um, his wife. Does. And actually, you don't see them together really, but I think you get from her that it's real. You know, yes. Um, and the way she speaks about him or behaves about him, kind of communicates that it's not just a trophy wife thing. And maybe it's just something that Charles Dance brings to it as well. And maybe it's the fact that Hurst hardly speaks, especially yeah. in the scene where. Mank is drunk and walking around the dinner table and kind of essentially writing the, you know, the idea for Citizen Kane, pitching Citizen Kane sort of drunkenly. Um, Hearst just takes it, to, you know, you're not kicking him out, just takes it. He actually comes across as an all right guy.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, again, you know, had the film been about him, I would, I would actually love to see about a film about uh, uh, them starring uh, Dance and uh, Amanda Seyfried. I think they were both kind of marvellous. Uh, but it's not. It's about Mankiewicz and none of it is explored. You know, I mean, you know, I understand um, that there were incidents of mental illness uh, in the family. You know, that the father was very ambitious for his sons, mm. right? Um, you know, I would have liked to know more the relationship, you know, because the brothers were very close, right? And actually, uh, Joseph Mankiewicz supported Herman's family after he died. I mean, there there. All kinds of bonds, you know, of human bonds and sacrifices and pain and stuff. That just, the film just does not deal with, really. And also, as an argument about him being the sole screenwriter, we don't get that either. You know, because actually you never see Orson Welles around at all, basically. Uh, So, I mean, to think about a movie, you know, a movie is not a screenplay, yeah? If it were, you would need to make the movie. You need to see some aspect of the collaboration, even on the screenplay. You know, and there's none of that either. So to no, me, it's he just. He's leaving,
0: he leaving Mount to it. Yeah. It, so calling in every now and again.
1: So the film fails as a character study, as a study of a person. You know, it fails as an argument, yeah, you know, for a particular kind of view of the making of this film. Uh, it fails as uh, a depiction of, you know, one of the central uh, cultural milieus of 1930s American culture yeah so to me it kind of it fails on all of those levels and it fails as a David Fincher film I think it's his worst film I haven't seen um, Alien 3 I love Alien 3 okay uh,
0: uh, I haven't seen the game I think Benjamin Button was pretty terrible
1: actually I haven't seen Benjamin Button so. pretty
0: bad in fact my brother was saying before he watched Mank, he was saying I hope it's not a David Fincher and his dad thing like Benjamin Button and I said oh did he write that he said no but Don Fincher spoke about Benjamin Button being about his dad.
1: Right. Oh, so well. maybe that's a relationship. His dad clearly brings him bad
0: luck. It's yeah. <laughs> yeah. a curse was right. on his career. <laughs> I, mean, I agree with a lot of what you said when you were summing up there. Um, but what I liked was the humour, the wit, the energy that I felt it had, the performances, and the kind of, like I say, the pastiche, the certain kind of... It's an evocation of not an era, but of an era of cinema that I enjoyed I found it playful and I liked well,
1: that well I expected more out of all of that I mean you know you are dealing with some of the most brilliant and talented people of the period I think it all could have been more dazzling I think actually you know it's a work that would have benefited from like little cameos of like stars playing stars I mean you know you see Norma Shearer and you go what? <laughs> you know like mm. I mean Norma Shearer is reduced to Irving Thalberg's wife, yeah, right? because she looks like a non-entity and she acts like a non-entity and, you know, and yet it's a plot point, right? The reason why Marion Davis moves to Warner's is because she doesn't get Marion Antoinette because Irving Thalberg's wife gets the part. You know, you want to see somebody, like, you know, with char- charisma and beautiful and, you know, all the things that Norma Shearer was, you know, instead of, like, this drab anonymous actress. I mean, there's, so, I, I just think it's so awful. On so many levels. And actually, I had to force myself to watch it, right? It's one of those <laughs> things that, you know, kind of... Um, yeah, it it wasn't like a fun watch for me, kind of. Yeah. I thought, ugh, ugh, ugh. And then I can't turn it off because Mike is coming. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I was surprised at how much I liked it. I didn't expect to like it as much as I did. And I, I got on with it really, really well. And so maybe that, maybe that actually goes to what you... Was being right at the start about saying well who does this film speak to because you're, you're someone who knows much more about the era than I do you know the stories you know the things that were missed out or the things that were incorrect or whatever it might be and I don't you know I'm I have a, some familiarity with it but I don't really and I'm normally taking the film as a kind of truth like everything it tells me I'm kind of questioning as mm. oh really how much is that based on reality and so on so I'm I am taking it as like characters more than historical you know, figures um But that probably speaks to why I enjoyed it, because I didn't have all of that to go, oh, this is shit. Well, perhaps. But, you know, Um, I
1: mean, I'm not too stuck on those things, right? Like, you know, actually, I was reading an article by Joseph McBride, which, you know, I love Joseph McBride's work. Um, But I also thought, oh, my God, is this this what film studies has gotten to? Because, you know, the whole article was a little bit like the type of article that, you know, uh, literature professors were writing about films in the 1930s oh this is not accurate this is not accurate you know the novel's not like this or you know or historians. so this is so historically inaccurate and you think you're fucking seeing a film about catherine the great like you know like (laughs) (laughs) yeah like you know so 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 you know i also don't think that you know i'm not a stickler for historical accuracy in drama either but, but what
0: you're seeing the opportunities missed of the stories that could have been told, which I'm not.
1: But I am also talking about it as a drama, as a film, yeah? And I think it's kind of unfocused uh, and it's incoherent and it lacks complexity and it's a bit smug, mm. you know? So um, so that's why I don't like it. It's not because, you know, it doesn't fit into my idea of what Hollywood was or should be or what I've read on it and sure. of it being inaccurate. I think it fails as a, as a drama. It fails as a film. Fair
0: enough. I will quickly say what my favourite bit was. Okay. Which I hope you liked, but you probably didn't. was when um, L.B. Mayer uh, takes Mank and Lederer through, and it, there's a, it's a shot that they're walking towards the camera, and he's talking about you know what the business is and why he likes him, why he's here and so on, and I, th- and I thought it was great. And he talks about... Um, uh, I mean, he goes so quickly, but it's, it's Arlis Howard who plays Elbie and I think he's really good. Mm. Um, and he says, um, "What we sell."
1: I love that. I know what you're talking about. It's, an, uh, it's the only thing that you sell that you don't sell. Yeah. Yeah. The, what, 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 what you sell is an experience, but you don't sell the thing itself.
0: What people buy from us, the man still owns. Something like yeah. that. We yeah. sell. We sell a memory.
1: That's right. You know, which, which
0: is really true. And actually, it kind of made me think about uh, vertical integration, which the, the studio system was or the film business was vertically integrated at the time, mm. and that's what later would be broken up. So cinemas own the exhibition mm. uh, uh, means. Um, because that's really come back now. This is a Netflix film, and it's made by Netflix and shown on Netflix and is owned by Netflix, uh-huh. and you really don't own it. You yeah. know, I mean, you, you can stream it, yeah, and you can't keep a copy. yeah, You know, not legally, anyway. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that really made me think about that. Like, that's, that's really back in a big way.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um... Yes, and it's always kind of, you know, one of the most fascinating things about kind of film, I think. You know, that what you buy is the experience or actually the memory of the experience, you know, because the experience itself instantly becomes a memory, right? Like, which is, is, um, well, I suppose it's like the theater in that way. You're also just buying a memory. You're not Mm -hmm. buying a thing, right? Um, And which has changed because actually now you can buy the DVD or the, you know, the Mm -hmm. box set you know, so um, but also
0: what you were saying to me recently about people going to the theater and not and not buying the experience so much as buying the bragging
1: rights to say I've been to the theater. Well, that is also true. Yeah, <laughs> people buy different aspects of it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. all right, let's wrap it up here. So, a mixed view. Uh, I think it's David Fincher's worst film, and I, I don't. I'm not just being hyperbolic. I really do think that. Um, you know, and again, I think comparable to. You know, Amadoras, I'm so excited. Where you you can't believe because I really think Fincher's a great filmmaker. So you can't believe that like somebody so gifted could do this schlock. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's my rating and yours, Mike.
0: Uh, uh, mine is I um, understand every criticism you've made and agree with many of them, and I saw many of them while I was watching myself, and um, I was enjoying too much the wit and the style to, to let it get to me.
1: Right, okay. <laughs> so, so so a mixed view. So I suppose kind of see it if you can. It is on 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 Netflix uh, and uh, easy to see. So uh, thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies and we are on... Apple Podcasts, uh, Google
0: Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter. Mm. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: And we've got another 40 minutes before I even begin looking at the lamp, Mm -hmm. so we can start watching something else, but let me just check on the lamp.
0: I was thinking about the um, Orson Welles interview on Parkinson from 74 as well, which was interesting, where he... Um, he talked about his daughter had bought a load of books about kind of classic Hollywood era, golden age of Hollywood. And he says, You know, presumably looking for some vain mention of her father. And he says, You know, I took to reading these books myself, and I started to realize that when you take out the amount of fun I had in that city, in that town, actually, it hurt so many people and broke so many people and did so much damage that actually yeah he said I, I think he said um, he said that the story of that town is dirty and its record is bad
1: well maybe you know um,
0: which maybe speaks to Mank in this because Mank is someone who at least the, what the film presents is someone who I think was I think what it presents is someone who was broken by it. like I say the substance abuse
1: yeah but you see to me the real hero would be someone like Wells mm. as opposed to Mankiewicz why yeah because Wells took all the chances, right? I mean, you know, he offended everybody, he got blackballed, yeah? Mm. He invested his own money into things. He had to go work in Europe, right? Because of the House of Un-American Activities, Mm. right? Like, he put himself on the line constantly, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and suffered for it, yeah? I mean, basically, you know, he lived in Spain for 10 years and he had to move to Italy, then, Mm. you know, he only returned to America in the 60s, right? Kind of... Yeah, and, you know, he kept investing his own money. The films wouldn't get finished. Yeah, like, kind of, yeah, some of them have only been released now after his death. You know, putting the money that he would make acting into, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's an artist, right? Yeah,
0: doing the the ads, doing the PAPs adverts. Exactly. Was it, he said, I think he said, um, even the trick painted posters.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Okay, give me my coffee. Give me my coffee. He says. Well, I can't. Oh, actually, maybe I can reach.
0: Okay. Oh, I, I thought you. Oh, you were talking to me. I thought you were just like saying to the air, like. No. Give me my coffee. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>